welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. show Undercover Boss. Anybody? Hands up. A few of you. Okay. If you haven't seen it, let me explain it to you. It was on the air for about 10 years. And what they would do is they would take a high-ranking official of a company like a CEO or a president or something like that, and they would kind of put them in costume. They would put them undercover. I've got a picture coming up here. This is actually the mayor of Pittsburgh when he did this. And then they would take a job in their organization as a, what I would call a regular person job. They'd be a cashier or a waiter or a cook or, or work at a call system center and they do that for about a week and it appeared to their co-workers like they were one of them all they saw was this persona put on by this boss now there was really two points to this show the first point was if you uh, put this CEO into an entry-level position in his company could that CEO do it and it was always hilarious when this person who ran the company couldn't do what they asked their uh, entry-level employees to do but the second part of the show was the reveal at the end of the show you would see the boss, the undercover boss, would return to headquarters, they would take off their costume, they would put back on their suit, and then they would call the employees that they had worked beside. And it was really cool to see these employees come back in, and they kind of wonder, why am I being called into headquarters? And then they walk into the office and be like, I think I know you. And in that moment, the president or the CEO would say, yeah, I'm the boss. And what you saw in those employees was this instant moment of transformation where they went from seeing this person as a friend to the CEO, where they went from seeing them as a fellow employee to someone in power, where they went from seeing them, seeing the forced persona of a costume versus the real person. And when that realization hit them, they changed immediately. They would soon be hit with amazement, but after that, there was an immediate reverence and respect for that person. You're no longer my buddy. You are now my boss. Now, what we're going to talk about today is Jesus is going to do that very same thing. He's going to reveal to his disciples his true identity, and they're going to be confronted with an unbelievable truth. And it's going to change how the disciples look at Jesus and how they listen to Jesus. If you're just joining us, this is our Christmas series. It's called, What Child Is This? And we're asking this question, why do we celebrate Christmas? What's the big deal about this baby that wise men would travel from hundreds or thousands of miles away to bring him? gifts? Why do the heavens burst open and the angels rejoice? And I just want to remind you, if, if you're here, and or if you were not here last week, you may be asking the question like, Brian, can you say that? Can you, can you ask how important Jesus is and Jesus' church? And absolutely we can because your Bible is written to answer that exact question. When you open your Bible and you go through the Gospels, you should have on your mind, who is Jesus? Because the answer is on the pages in front of you. Uh, Secondly, there's a few of you here, and I'm glad that you're here. You're still trying to make up your mind about this Jesus person. Is he really who he says he is? Should I dedicate and follow him for all of my life? Should I accept what I'm being told is this offer of salvation? So we're answering those questions in this series. For the context of today, we're working backwards through Jesus' life. We'll work back to the birth right before Christmas. But for the context of today, Jesus has been walking around. He's been showing that he is special by doing miracles. He's healed people. He's even raised a few people from the dead. And that's where we pick up in Mark chapter 8. This is verses 27 through 30. Now Jesus and his disciples went out of the towns of Caesarea Philippi and on the road. He asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? 
So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to come back to that. So Jesus, Jesus here is asking this question. Uh, how special do people think that I am? Like, like people have to deal with me. How, how am I special? And that's the series, or that's the question of the series. How special is Jesus? Who is he and why is he? And so we asked the disciples, all these people, they have to be talking about me. Who do they say that I am? How do, how do they explain me? What's the theory? And the answers the disciples give back to him is, well, some people say you're Elijah, one of the most prolific prophets of the Old Testament. Others people say you're John the Baptist, who was the only current prophet that they had had in their lifetime. And then others, they're saying all of the prophets as well. And what you want to notice about this is that all of the answers were prophets, which is simply a regular man who has been given a message to deliver from God. I've said this probably like eight weeks in a row now. A prophet is what I would call a spiritual mailman. God gives them a message and they deliver that. And so you notice the predominant opinion of Jesus was that he was special, but he was only a special man. That's your first take-home truth. Number one, culture says that Jesus was special, but still only a man. Any person seriously looking for any answers cannot deny the person of Jesus Christ. Any person seriously looking for answers cannot deny the person of Jesus Christ. He is one of the most documented individuals in all of history. He is one of the most influential his teachers of all of history. His teachings have revolutionized the world. And I'm not speaking from the pastor on the stage. I've got a diploma hanging on my wall in my office, and it says I have a history degree. Historically, from a non-believer's point of view, Jesus is one of the most influential people in history. So we're kind of forced to deal with who is this person. And the predominant opinion of the world, of people who don't know him, will say things like, well, he was a really good man. He was a countercultural leader. He changed things up a little bit. Uh, they think he was a great teacher. Jesus, they'll say, was not God, but his teachings were really good to teach people how to be better. And that's an important question because honestly, one day the only question that matters is what is our view of Jesus? One of these days, every person in this room, we will die, our family will cry, they will lay our body in the ground, and at that moment, the only question that matters about our whole life was, what did we do with the person of Jesus? Who was he to us? Did we choose to follow him? And if, we, if the answer is, he's just a regular man, or we don't believe he's anything but a good man, we're all lost. Now, Jesus turns to his disciples at this moment and says, okay, so everybody thinks I'm a special man, but that's it. I'm a special man. You guys have had a front row, front row seat. You guys have seen things that other people haven't seen. Not only that, you've seen them multiple times. So now that you've seen that, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers. I love Peter. We're going to pick on him all day. Peter, first one. I want to be the answer. He's the teacher's pet. He says, you are the Christ. Now, we, we need to deal with the Christ for a second. What, what does that mean? Because Jesus Christ is not like his first and last name. Christ is a title. It would be something like, like Dr. So-and-so. It is the title of who he is. Uh, the Greek word there is Christo, and it literally means the anointed one. If you translate that word literally, it means the anointed one. Peter says, you are the anointed one. 
Now, to us, that may not make a lot of sense, but if you go back into their cultural context, this is telling of who they believe Jesus is. One of the things that they would do to... uh, um, anoint somebody king, is actually called anointing somebody king, of somebody becoming king, is they would pour oil over their head, and it was a sign of them being chosen and set aside from God. You see that in the story of David. If you've spent much time studying David, you know the story of when he was anointed king. Samuel goes to David's father, Jesse, and he says, bring me all of your sons. And he goes down through the list of them. They're all good looking. They're all big. They're all strong. And Samuel looks at Jesse and says, "Um, God's saying none of these are the king. And Jesse says, well, I've got one more son. He's out in the fields. You wouldn't be interested in him. He's a you know, little gangly teenage boy. And they pulled David in and Samuel said, this is the one God has chosen to be king. And then he anointed him king. He set him aside and he chose him. Or he, he, he uh, set him aside as God has chosen him. So what we're looking at is there's been this promise for thousands of years that one day there will be a king, a deliverer sent from God. He will be God's anointed one. He will be the Christ. So the world is saying to Jesus, you're a prophet. But disciples and followers of Jesus are saying, you are the only true king. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are chosen by God to deliver God's people. So your second take-home truth is, is those who, Jesus, or those who know Jesus say he is the king sent to deliver the world. Those who know Jesus say he is the king sent to deliver the world. Now I want you to notice the difference. The world says Jesus is one of many. Believers say he is the only one. The world says he is a good man. Believers say he is more than a man. The world says he is to be taken from. Believers say he is the king who I serve. Others say he is a good teacher. And believers say he is our deliverer. And if you claim to be a Christian in here, what you're saying is I believe that Jesus Christ is the deliverer, the king sent from God. He is not only the king of the world. When we become a follower of Christ, we say he is my king. I choose to live in his kingdom. I choose to follow and love him. And so that's what the disciples are saying here. Now, at that moment of that realization, everything is about to change for those disciples because what Jesus does best is he flips everything on its head. And he is about to change, challenge every single belief. The belief at this time, the predominant belief is that this Christ, this anointed one, would be a militaristic leader. He's going to come in. He's going to take an army. He's going to overthrow whoever is oppressing us. He is going to conquer them. And then he is going to walk into Jerusalem. He's going to sit on a throne. We're going to clothe him in purple. We're going to put a gold crown on his head. And he will roll over us. That's what the expectation was. And Jesus comes in and he says, uh, yeah, that's not the kind of king I am. Not in this lifetime anyway. Not here on earth. And so he's going to begin to to challenge what they thought. He's going to begin to correct their views. We would call this, we would call this discipleship, where you train someone to follow. We use that word a lot in church, making disciples or discipleship. And, And what that means is we're going to take what you think and we're going to correct it based upon the word of God. And so if you're here, you at one time probably walked into a church thinking, I have to earn the favor of God. But in truth, we teach and the scripture teaches that God's grace is for us, not for anything that we've done. We, we walk into a church thinking our life is about our power and our prestige. But in truth, we were created to serve God. You probably think that all the resources that you have, your money, your possessions were earned by you and your hard work, but the Bible teaches you that God gives you resources as of something that you can give back to him. 
We think that we come into this place and, and we can just express our emotions however we want to. If I love you, I'll hug you. If I hate you, I'll hit you. But the Bible teaches us that forgiveness is freedom. And so what Jesus is coming in and saying is, you were looking for an earthly king, but what you're going to get is a heavenly king. You were looking for someone who was going to deliver countries, but I'm going to deliver you from a bigger enemy. I'm going to deliver you from sin. So what Jesus is about to do is he's going to go into two major teachings about what it means for him to be the Christ. So number three, 3A, to truly understand the anointed king, 3A, he's going to teach that deliverance comes from sacrifice, not from war. That comes from verses 31 through 33. Listen to this. And he, that's Jesus, and Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Favorite part. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So their expectation of who this Christ would be, their expectation of who Jesus would be looked a lot like, I've got a picture coming up here, looked a lot like uh, William Wallace. How many of you have seen Braveheart? They expected him to come in with a sword and paint his face and lead his armies to victory. That's who they're looking for. And Jesus comes in and he's going, um, no, I'm not going to do that. There will be a lot of blood, but it won't be the blood of my enemies. The reality is I have come here to save you from sin. And the process that he lays out for doing that is what's going to have to happen is I will not ride in as a king and sit on a throne. I will go before the people who should worship me. I will be rejected by them. They will hate me. They will lie about me. They will torture me. They will brutally murder me. And then you will lay my body in a grave. And then he says something unbelievable. But don't worry, after three days, I'll get back up. After three days, I will rise again. And this is, this is the plan for our salvation. Now, that's a hard thing for the disciples. That's a hard thing for the disciples to understand. And we are kind of faced with the same thing. That's a hard thing for any human to understand. If we can accept what Jesus says about himself and what he did in faith, that's, that's the faith that leads us to salvation. That's really what it takes for God to save us is that we profess our faith in him. I believe you are the king. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose again. That's faith. But there's also the opportunity to reject Jesus's message. And we see that from Peter, who, bless his heart, he tries so hard, but he just can't get it right. I love what Peter does. He pulls Jesus off to the side. He's just said, you are the anointed one. You are sent from God. You are the only one. And then Jesus says, you're right, and I'm going to die, and you're going to bury me. And Peter grabs him and says, come here, let me talk to you for a second. Um, I don't think you know what you're talking about. Does that sound familiar to any of y'all? Ever talk to God that way? I don't think you know what you're talking about because kings, they don't die and get buried. Kings rule in power and authority. Now, Peter had some reasons to reject this because he had a belief about the way things should happen. And the reasons we reject Jesus today are for the same reason. We have beliefs about the way we think things should happen. And what will happen is if you open your Bible, it will shatter almost every belief you have about God. It'll shatter almost everything that you think about him. Sometimes we reject him because we come up with this concept that, that God's job is to serve me. He's to take care of me. And the first time we are challenged with, with an expectation that he gives us, the first time we are challenged with maybe God expects us to go through something hard, we want to walk away like, no, that's not the kind of king I want to follow. 
Sometimes we reject Jesus because he's offensive. The most offensive thing that anybody can say to you or me is you are not God. There is a God who is greater than you. And so what really matters is not, not what you want, but what God wants. The world doesn't revolve around you. The world revolves around God's will. And that's offensive and that's hard to swallow. But maybe the hardest thing for us to understand about Christ is what he teaches that his purpose is to come here because we need a savior. It's hard to understand that our sin is so severe that the things that we do that we write off and say, oh, it's not a big deal. It's not a huge thing for me to do this. Those things are so severe that the only way we could possibly make our way to God is if God sends his son who dies a bloody death for you and me so that we can be, our, our sins can be paid for. I look at that and I go, I'm, I'm not that bad. I, I didn't do that many bad things. It really take the death of our Savior. So we have an opportunity to reject him because of our misunderstandings or accept what he says. And so with that in mind, he takes us to the second major teaching, point B. It says, following this king is about humility, not power. Following this king is about humility, not power. Listen to verses 34 through chapter 9 1. It says, when he had called his people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power." So there was this expectation among the disciples. All right, so this guy is the king. He's going to be a militaristic ruler. He's going to have this huge palace. And then they're sitting there thinking, and I'm one of his special 12. I get to be with him. If he's going to be rich and famous, I'm going to be rich and famous. That's their expectation. And in reality, Jesus begins to teach something very different about what it means to follow him. He, he begins to teach them that you were called to humility, that you're not being called to your own power and prestige. And so Jesus gives us three different things that he says here that it means to follow him. The point one, or the first point, is point I, which is deny yourself on your take-home truths. Deny yourselves. This is the opposite of our utmost desire. From the second we are born, the only thing we think about is us. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I need to go to the bathroom. We get a little bit older. I want to be the coolest kid at the school. I want to have the most friends. I want to have the prettiest girlfriend or the best looking boyfriend. We get a little bit older. I want the nicest car. I want the biggest house. I want the power and the prestige. I want to climb the ladder. That's what our ultimate goal is if we're left to ourselves. And Jesus' words is, I want you to deny yourself. You will have the desire for all of these things, but be willing to leave that behind. Don't spend your life chasing the things that you want. Spend your life chasing me. The second thing he says after saying deny yourself, uh, point, what is that, I, I? Is that how you do that? Point two, I. Take up your cross is what he says. Now to us, that seems like kind of a okay thing to say. 
Because for us, we look back at Jesus' teaching, now looking back towards the cross as a symbol of hope, because that's where he died and he left my, or he paid for my sins, or left at the cross. So we look at crosses and we're like, oh, that's a symbol of hope. And we have them on our t-shirts, and we wear necklaces with them, we get tattoos of a cross, and we're like, look, I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ. It's a symbol of hope for us. But Jesus is teaching this before he has done his work on the cross. There's no context for them to understand that the cross will one day become a symbol of hope. To them, the cross is the most excruciating torture device ever admitted or ever created. It'd be like me walking around with a, a shirt with a guillotine on it. Guillotine, sorry. Southern guillotine. Or having a necklace with an electric chair on it. And so he says to them, take up your torture device of death and follow me. Now, what's he saying here? Is he saying, hey, we have to be willing to give up our physical lives to follow Jesus? And the answer to that is maybe. Of the 12 people he was talking to here, one of them betrayed him and took his own life. One of them lived to old age. The other 10 of them were brutally martyred for their belief in Christ. And so, yes, it is possible that Jesus Christ could cause, uh, call us to lay down our physical lives for his cause and the cause of the gospel. But even if we don't lay down our physical life, even if we're not buried because of our belief, what he does call us to do is lay down our spiritual life, to lay down our desire to be us. See, this symbol of death is not necessarily about killing you physically. It's about killing you spiritually. It's about letting the you that you know die to become the you that God wants to create in you. To quit being the person who worships you and be the person who worships him. To quit being the person who is, uh, who is driven by sin to be a person who is driven by the Holy Spirit. Uh, this morning we had two baptisms. Isn't that awesome? I'm so excited. Wow. Baptism is a symbol of death. Let me be clear, water is not about washing you. What we're doing is we're, is we're taking a moment and we're saying, okay, here is the me that used to follow my way. We're going to take that me and we're going to bury them because they are dead. And then when I come out of that water, I'm saying to you, I'm a new person that my life revolves around following Jesus Christ. My life is about him. That's, that's what baptism is. I should have explained that to y'all before I baptized y'all. Sorry. That, that's what it is. And so when we say we are followers of Christ, we're saying, I'm going to let me die so that I can become a new me. And then Jesus says, once you can deny yourself and take up your cross, he says, point three, I, 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 follow me. To, to follow him means to give up yourself, to do as he does, to forget what you think you know, to believe what he says he knows give up your wants and desires for his wants and desires. He's saying, do as I do, live as I live. Follow me. I love the way Matt Chandler talks about um, Jesus being our priority. He says something to the effect of Jesus is not your first priority. Jesus had better not be your first priority. Jesus should be the paper that your priorities are written on. It is all-encompassing. Everything about following him, everything about my life goes into that box. That how does God want me to handle this? Who does God want me to marry? How does he want me to live? What job does God want me to be in? How do I handle my money? How do I handle my friends? How do I handle my relationships? Every single thing about our life goes onto this list of priorities. And he is the ultimate priority. He is the paper that our priorities are, live, are listed on. 
Jesus is effectively saying to the disciples, I gave my life to deliver you from sin. Your response should be to give your life to follow me. Now, he said this to 12 individuals 2,000 years ago, but it was recorded because he was also saying it to you and me. I want to be very clear. Jesus did not demand anything out of his disciples 2,000 years ago that he doesn't demand out of you and me, his disciples, now. And so his calling to us is to put him first. And I have to think, like, I hate to use this word, but by any human standard, that is insane. That is insane. I'm getting like 100 years here tops. That's, that's all we're going to get, 100. Maybe if we're really lucky, 105. I like greasy pizza, so I'm aiming for like 60. Like, it's not going to be that long. And God's saying, you have this short amount of time to live life, experience everything, do what you want to do. And he's saying, drop all that and forget about it. Give up your life, the only one that you have to follow me. And so my question is, like, why would we do that? It's because Jesus knows something that we don't know. He knows that he is the king of an unseen kingdom. That what we see here is temporary and what is in the future is eternal. And that there are great things at stake. And here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus understands how dumb we are. And so what he's going to do is instead of just saying, here, take it or leave it. He's going to give them a small taste of what he knows that they don't know, a small taste of the things of the future and when all they see is the taste or the things of the present. So read with me in chapter nine. This is verses two through six. Two through six. Now after six days, so about a week later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart themselves. And he was transfigured. Everybody say Transfigured. Before them, his clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no longer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, uh, Rabbi, is it good for us to be here? And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. So about one week later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. Peter, James, and John are Jesus' inner circle. I've searched. I don't know why these three were Jesus' inner circle. This was his friend group. These three were with him everywhere. These are the same three that went to the house with him last week when he brought the girl back to life. He takes them up onto the mountain, and he's taking them for a purpose. He's going to show them something. And, and the Bible uses the word transfigured, which is a word I have never heard used outside of teaching this particular scripture of, of uh, this particular passage of scripture. It's the only time I've ever heard it used. But if you once again look at the Greek word behind it, it makes a little bit more sense. The Greek word is metamorpho. It's the word where we get our English word metamorphosis which means to be changed from one thing to another. So when the Bible says Jesus was transfigured, what it's communicating to us is there was a visible change in who Jesus was before his disciples. Up to this point, Jesus is all man. And what they've seen of Jesus is they've seen him as a man who has the power to heal and bring back death or bring back life to the death. But they saw that he was all man. When Jesus was cooking and he cut his finger, he bled like a man. Jesus had to walk off into the bushes to find a bathroom like a, like a regular man. Jesus' body got tired like a regular man. When Jesus woke up in the morning, his hair looked bad. When Jesus talked to you, there were times when he might have had bad breath. They saw all of these things. To them, Jesus was remarkably normal as far as it went visibly and physically. 
But what they're going to see is they're going to see a change to his heavenly glory. What he's doing is he's revealing to them his kingness. He is the ruler of the kingdom. And so what he's saying is this is not about expensive purple robes and crowns and wooden thrones for me to sit on. Understand that I am the king of glory. And I love this passage because it's recorded three different times by three different people as they try to teach what is the transfiguration. And you can tell none of them know how to say it. They're coming up with every example that they can come up with to, to say that Jesus changed and what he looked like. And they're like, uh, he shined like the sun. I love the way Mark put it. Uh, he was white like snow. And then he's like, no, that sounds like he had white clothes on. White such as no laundromat could possibly get his clothes. But all of them really point to two things, two things that are important about Jesus' transfiguration. Uh, first, it points to the fact that he shined, that there was the glow of the glory of God. The Bible would tell us that God shines like the sun, but brighter. Secondly, Jesus, when he shined, he shined pure white. He, he didn't just glow. He, he was a, a pure white. And this is communicating that he is the king who rules in glory, power, holiness, and purity. Your fourth take-home truth is Jesus is not an earthly king. He's an eternal, heavenly king. Jesus is going to emphasize his place as king of the heaven, king of heaven, by talking with two citizens of heaven. The first one is Elijah. I talked about him a little bit last week. Elijah is now seen talking to Jesus. You need to understand, to an Israelite, there is no greater person than Elijah. Yet Elijah comes to meet with Jesus. Elijah is subservient to him. And not only did Jesus come in, or Elijah come at Jesus' call, Elijah has been gone now. He left this earth 400 years before this in a chariot of fire, went up into heaven with the angels, and everybody's like, well, that was weird. And he's been gone all that time, but he comes back to talk to Jesus. The second person standing there talking, uh, talking with Jesus is Moses. You guys know Moses, let my people go, parts the Red Sea. Dead for 1,600 years, yet he is summoned by Jesus to come talk to him. Jesus has given them a picture of eternity, of life that never ends. And Peter, bless his heart, here he goes again. He's got to say something. And it even says he didn't know what to say, which means you probably should keep your mouth shut, but Peter doesn't do that. And, and he goes, uh, Jesus, this is pretty awesome. Y'all are three like really special dudes. Let's make three tabernacles for each of you because, you know, to remember the specialness of this moment. And this upsets God the Father. Listen, last scripture here, verse 7. There's a lot here. We're going to talk about it a little bit more next week, but just listen for a second. And a cloud came over and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. So here's what you need to know. There's a lot there. We don't have time to do it all. The cloud represents God's presence. There's other places where this cloud exists. And what he's doing is he's speaking and he says, uh, this Jesus is not normal. This is my son. He is very special. And then he says, hear him. Hear what he has to say. And he's not just saying, like, listen, hear what he's saying. When you say hear in this fashion, it means did you listen, understand, and apply what he's teaching you? My daughter's three years old. She's, she's gorgeous. I love her to death. But she's in that stage where it's taking, um, how do I say this nicely, a lot of parenting. You guys know what I'm talking about? She's getting a little hard-headed. And so what I'll do is when I, when I need to kind of correct her or move her another way, I'll, I'll get down, I'll get down on, on her level and I'll be like, hey, eyes and ears right here. Eyes, nope, nope, eyes and ears. Look at me. Look at me. And finally I'll get her attention. I'll be like, okay, sweetie, listen. You cannot stand on the top of the back of the couch 
and jump off and drop your elbow on daddy's head like you're a WWE wrestler, okay? That's not okay. And she'll say, yeah, and then she'll try to go and I'll stop her and I'll always say, do you hear me? Did you listen to what I said? Do you understand it? And can you apply it? That's what God the Father is saying about Jesus here. And the fact that this comes right after these two major teachings, that there's a sacrifice needed for your sin, and that Jesus is that sacrifice to be our Savior, and that to follow Him means to give up your life and follow Him, those are the teachings I believe that God the Father is talking about. Hear Him. Listen to what Jesus is saying. Understand it, and then apply it to your life. Let's get real here for just a second. I love y'all. And my biggest fear as your pastor is that we come to church every week and we don't hear these two teachings of Jesus. That we come to church and we're still trying to earn his favor. We're trying to be good enough for him. We, we haven't accepted his gift freely and understood our sin and understood the cost of our sin. We're not accepting that sacrifice because we're saying, all I have to do is be good enough. I just want to be a moral person. And that's not what we're doing here. We don't come to church to be moral people. We come to church to be followers of Christ. And my second fear is for those of us, maybe you could say it's baby faith, who we truly put our faith in Christ. We don't step into the kind of following that Jesus calls us to. There's this, I think it's a uniquely American idea, but there's this version of Christianity where what I have to do to be a Christian is do some churchy stuff, say hallelujah, maybe I'll cry once again and that makes me a follower. But what Jesus says about being his follower, he says, you lay down your life and you become mine. The Bible says this about Christians. It says, you were bought with a price. I love that verse because when I buy something, it's mine. I dare one of you to try to drive my truck away from here today. I'll sick Rick on you. I will, in a heartbeat. It's mine. I control it. And what Jesus calls us to is his followers and his believers. He's saying, if you want to be mine, you have to be completely under my control. You have to see me as the king. And this matters because one day, one day we're going to die and we're going to be confronted by Jesus. And what we're going to see is not the man that most people saw. We will see Jesus in heaven as the disciples saw him here at the transfiguration. This is from Revelation chapter 1. It talks about seeing Jesus in heaven after the death, resurrection, and ascension. And John is speaking here. He's in heaven. He says, uh, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about his chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like flames of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in the furnace, and, the voice of, uh, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he said to me, or, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. One day, one day, Rick, if you want to start coming up here, one day you and I will see this picture face to face of Jesus. And all we have to hold on to is the hope that what he said was true. That he paid the price for my sins. And when I stand in his holiness, I'm not judged by my sinful nature. I'll be judged by his perfection because he gave that to me.
If you're sitting here today, I want you to know this Jesus stuff is real. It's not just a habit that we do. It really has um, eternal consequences. So my prayer and my hope today is if you're sitting here and you don't know him, if you can't say for sure, I'm ready for that moment to stand in front of this Jesus. Today is the day to reach out and accept salvation from him. Because one day it'll be too late. So as we have this reflection time, I'm here to talk with you. I'm here to pray with you. This is always open. You can pray where you are. But here's what I ask you every week. Don't leave here the same way that you walked in. Thank you for joining us this week at Ramsey Heights. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. And if you did, feel free to share it with others. If we can help you begin to follow Jesus or grow in your relationship with Him, join us on Sundays or connect with us on social media or our website, RamseyHeightsFamily.online.